You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America. Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the groupthink, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the conservative conscience. And welcome back to the conservative conscience here at your only show for independent conservative thought on Westwood One Podcast Network at Conservative Review. It is Wednesday, glorious day today, crazy day today in the news. It's kind of surreal surveilling the land here. You got three things going on, and it's bizarre because on the one hand, you have the Kavanaugh sex soap opera that, frankly, especially before tomorrow's hearing, I want to avoid at all costs because it's not worth talking about it until we get clarity on any of this stuff. But you have that going on. So we have a civil war in this country over a simple Supreme Court seat. Now, I'm going to link to in show notes just um, in case you haven't seen it, because I'm not going to talk about this for the remainder of the show, but my article on George Washington's Supreme Court and what we could learn from it, and you will see how inconsequential the Supreme Court was as a political organ at the time, and that's the way it should be. Then at the same time, we have two other things going on. We have this massive budget betrayal with, with the House spending its final days in session doing retarded things, um, obviously giving the Democrats everything they want on spending, on immigration, on abortion, funding, you name it, uh, health care with this crazy Cromnibus bill, but then also signing on to this opioid package bill. There's, they're going to vote on the conference report today. Last week when I talked about it, that was the Senate voting on it. Now they go to conference, and they were done. They were done right away. I mean, for all the talk about government not working and we can't pass anything, let me tell you, when they decide to agree on issues, which is ironically, despite all the cat fighting, 90% of the important policy outcomes they agree on, they get done pretty darn quickly. So there's that, and then they're voting on 57 suspension bills that are just like meaningless, like naming post offices or just other stupid nanny state stuff, like government funding for these checkoff programs to, to fund certain industries, advertising for certain industries, just stupid things, nothing they could take home to their electorate. And speaking of taking home to their electorate, here's the third thing that is going on, the UN General Assembly, which is why we decided to make Foreign Policy Friday, Foreign Policy Wednesday today – uh, because things will get crazy with the Kavanaugh stuff at the end of the week. And I wanted to have our national security correspondent, Jordan Schachtel, to come in and give us kind of an overview of what's going on at the UN General Assembly, stuff going on in the world, and Donald Trump's magnificent speech, which, again, it's such a shame when you look at what your average voter, average suburban voter is hearing, the daily soap opera, the daily just like, ugh, I'm sick of this. Um, everything's crazy with this presidency. That's the impression they get. And yet they don't hear his best moments, which truly are pretty good. And this is from someone who has been pretty critical of the president on many issues. And I'm going to take a meat cleaver to him uh, later this week when he signs this stupid budget bill. But for now, I think we need to celebrate yesterday's UN speech. And I want to make sure it doesn't get lost in the shuffle. 
So with that, we're bringing on our national security correspondent, Foreign Policy Friday on Wednesday, Jordan Schachtel. Hey, Jordan, how you doing? Hey, Daniel, doing well. Thanks. All right, so you should appreciate this opportunity to not talk about Kavanaugh and sex. Um, <laughs> you know, this is, uh, I guess, our safe space, <laughs> you know, to actually talk about stuff that, that matters. And frankly, it matters more, in my view, than the Supreme Court, if you really understand how the Supreme Court works. Um, why did you call yesterday's speech one of Trump's greatest speeches of his presidency? Yeah, well, he hit on all the, the big issues, you know, that his voters and conservatives especially care about. And, um, you know, over from 2008 to 2016, we saw Barack Obama go in front of the world stage and declare, you know, that his idealist Wilsonian vision for the world was, you know, the, the highest principle you could aspire towards. And Trump basically just rejected um, every policy that the Obama administration imposed um, when he called for sovereignty and patriotism to be, you know, the kind of highest um, assets the United States could uphold. And, uh, you know, he's really pushing hard on this um, realist worldview as a means to, uh, you know, maintain peace and prosperity in the world. And I think, you know, it's such a firm contrast to the worldview articulated by the Obama administration. And it has paid dividends, especially with shoring up, you know, our allies in the Middle East and, you know, pu pushing Iran totally on its heels, um, you know, getting out of the Paris uh, climate deal, all these international agreements that didn't help the U.S., uh, you know, leaving UNRWA, which is the U.N. specialized uh, Palestinian agency, you know, that the U.S. used to give hundred, hundreds of millions of dollars to every year. And now we're no longer contributing to that. So it's just... Um, you know, it's a good time to, I think, recap, you know, what the president has accomplished. He's still got a way to go on foreign policy. But, you know, the speech really put um, our priorities in order. You know, there's no more talking about how, like, there's going to be an Arab spring that's going to save the world. You know, the president's really grounded in reality. And that's how he wants um, America to really, um, you know, have its foreign policy in that same position. You know, what I found refreshing was not only was it a break from Obama, but really a break from the smart set in both parties, from what we've seen from past Republican administrations. I wanted to get your comments before we go kind of theater by theater, different issue, just the general take. There's a couple of quotes that stood out to me that really is very near and dear to the hearts of, of both of us. Who have this agenda? And there's, I mean, you know, we, we we have a small circle of mutual friends that are very into this, this false dichotomy to try to punch through the false dichotomy of are you an interventionist or are you an isolationist? And and what really he was laying out is what a lot of us have been calling for for a long time, that disengaging from these anti-sovereignty, whether it's the International Criminal Court, whether it's UNRWA, whether it's the migration, um, the 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 UN migration, uh agency it's it's not a matter of us disengaging and just going home and like locking our doors screw you we don't care about international relations no it's that here's what trump said we believe that when nations respect the rights of their neighbors and defend the interests of their people they can better work together to secure the blessings of safety prosperity and peace and then he went on to say um, again, I thought this was really solid that uh, – where, where is this? Um, 
he, he was talking, I don't have the exact quote here, but sovereign, oh, here it is. Sovereign and independent nations are the only vehicle where freedom has ever survived. Democracy has ever endured or peace has ever prospered. And so we must protect our sovereignty and our cherished independence above all. And then finally, he ended off by saying America's policy of principled realism means we will not be held hostage to old dogmas, discredited ideologies, and so-called experts who have been proven wrong over the years time and time again. To me, isn't he saying, no, we're going to engage very robustly, but by everyone having mutually re- mutual respect for our sovereignty, stability, and security, that's how you actually combat the mutual threats. Yeah, a hundred percent, and I think it's it's a critique of the um, the twenty first century, you know, bipartisan foreign policy class. And he's right; they've gotten basically everything wrong over the past couple of decades um, with the you know, the long wars and all over Africa and the Middle East, and um, you know the the confidence expressed by the bipartisan foreign co- policy class, so sure of themselves. In uh, you know what the president referred to as discredited ideologies, um, a lot of people tried to pin this speech as you know an isolationist speech or uh, you know he's retreating, but it, but it was no such thing. Um, and I and I tried to make that very clear, um, you know, in talking about this on the radio and and writing for Conservative Review, is that this this was not you know a hardcore nationalist speech. The president was basically just saying you know this is how we're going to engage with the world. If you respect our sovereignty, we'll respect yours. And it's a healthy thing to be a patriotic citizen of a nation instead of, let's say, you know, a member of a communist movement or an Islamist movement that is a global movement that threatens the sovereignty of countries. And, uh, you know, he's definitely borrowing a little bit from Ronald Reagan's peace through strength um, and how he delivered that address, which I think is really good. Yeah, it's funny. I actually have a column coming out today where I think this is the second generation of peace through strength. This is the natural um, inheritance of that just as applied to the time and and life we live in today, um, where it used to be the Soviet Union was the end all during the 80s. Now – it's really, you know, an amalgamation of, of a number of factors. You have uh, this cross-border migration problem, which is huge. I mean, in Europe, hundreds of thousands, but here also we forget it's not just the refugees we bring in, um, which he challenged, but the asylum we have, which is hundreds of thousands from Latin America, and it brings over drugs and gangs. And he mentioned that it was very good. Unfortunately, signing stupid bills that do the opposite. But you know, again, I mean. What I was struck by listening to him is that two things. Number one, that when he has prepared remarks, I mean, everyone has noted this. You saw it through the State of the Union addresses he gave. He really sounds presidential, and the substance is almost unassailable. The the, the, the media doesn't want to focus on it because they don't have much they could attack it with. And it's a shame we don't hear this more often. Number one. And number two, it's a shame we don't have a movement helping him and standing behind him and nudging him in the right direction where he's kind of teetering. He struck me as a man who, you know, no one would accuse him of being a great intellectual, but he actually gets it more than 
I, I can't find who, who are the intellectuals. I mean, who is giving a vision that we've been trying to do on these Foreign Policy Fridays, um, belying this false dichotomy of Wilsonian interventionalism and the Ron Paul isolationism, um, You know, understanding what is a priority, what is a threat, what's not a threat, um, which he clearly does. I mean, he, clearly he understands Iran is violating everyone else's sovereignty. So that's something where we could all get together – and and combat. At the same time, he recognizes North Korea is a little different situation, very grave threat. But he's like, look, I'm not all bombs. I'm all for diplomacy. Oh, but by the way, you know, while he's he did he offers some sweet talk to to Kim, and that normally would bother me. But then at the same time, he's like, hey, sanctions ain't coming off until until there's de- denuclearization. So there's your carry a, a heavy stick. Uh, uh, you know, talk. talk what is it? Um, talk softly and carry a, a heavy stick. So I think that was solid there. And then that gets me to Afghanistan. That's one thing he didn't mention, but we know from Bob Woodward's book, and I think it's really been corroborated by many other Washington Post axes reports we've seen over the last year and a half. Trump recognizes Afghanistan as a dumpster fire. We have no interest in it. And he's been fighting the generals on it. I feel like yeah, he's alone. It, 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 it's a shame because it's become a political issue. And I think that's unfortunately why he can't mention Afghanistan is because it's not popular to really bring it up anymore. Um, I don't think anyone really cares, unfortunately, even though we have thousands of soldiers there. And, you know, the CIA has massive presence there. And there's all kinds of uh, things going on in Afghanistan that aren't really too helpful um, but what I also noticed at the, um, you know, at the UN the other day is that John Bolton said something really interesting about Iran. Um, he said that we're in Syria to essentially make sure Iran doesn't have a permanent foothold there. And I thought that was a very interesting policy development because General Mattis, the defense secretary, has been saying we are in Syria to defeat ISIS, um, which is you know basically just defeated at this point or. Uh, you know, it, they don't really have an insurgency anymore. So there's certainly some friction in the administration. Unfortunately, over Afghanistan, there's still, I think, too much of a consensus to stay because it requires, I think, enormous political courage to say, you know, enough is enough. Yeah. Um, and all of the think tanks are, I think, on the wrong side of this, whether they're conservative or liberal. Um, but in terms of, I think there the uh, the Syria issues become very interesting because John Bolton said it very directly in a press conference yesterday. He said we're in Syria to make sure Iran doesn't you know continue moving forward. And I thought that was pretty shocking. Um, but, but, but Jordan, so, what bothers me about that is that Iran only has the foothold because of the Mattis side. In other words, because yeah. we obsessively cleared out the Sunni insurgency, and I don't like calling it. ISIS, because there's actually um, Al-Sham now in the Iblid area that's that's going to be the, the, the next generation, just like uh, you know ISIS was born out of Al-Qaeda in Iraq. It's the perpetual Sunni insurgency that's going to fight back against the Alawites in, you know, in Syria and uh, the Iranian Shia control in Baghdad on the, on the Iraqi side. And we cleaned it out for them. We cleaned it out for Iran and Russia. Russia was very close to letting Assad fall 
because they understood they couldn't referee the Civil War. We come in there like, yep. hey, let's referee the Civil War for you. So then Iran and Russia are like, hey, this is awesome. While they're sitting and holding down the Sunni insurgency, we'll come in here. So, I mean, I'm glad to see that Bolton has – it seems like he's moved on from trying to at least – I don't know, maybe overthrow Assad and just focus more on the Israeli focus of just stopping Iran. But do you get the impression that they understand that we caused that? That had after 9-11, had we gone after Iran instead of Iraq and Afghanistan? We now know, based on the court case, Iran facilitated the 9-11 attacks. Um Afghanistan is is nothing but a bunch of sand dunes. They don't have any money. Iran had the money and logistics, and that to this day, they're harboring Al Qaeda, even though they're they're Shia, you know. But they unite. It's funny because they they fight like cats and dogs in in Syria, but you know they um, harbor Al Qaeda for their purposes. This is the one thing that I I, I feel like we 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 just don't have at this point. Um, yeah, you, you know what I mean. We, we just don't have a coherent ideology telling the president, "Look, you're right on Iran, but some of what you're doing, obsessing about ISIS, is countermanding that." Yeah, no, I 100 percent agree. And and at least um, you know the president's starting to focus a lot on what's going on inside of Iran instead of you know in the proxy wars in Syria and Yemen. And you know we could debate what's going on with U.S. policy there, but. Um, an encouraging development is that the president's really focusing on sanctioning um, Iran and making sure that people, um, you know, especially that Europeans can't do business with them. Um, and that, that kind of comes back to, I think he has a fundamental understanding if, you know, if you target the source of the terrorism, Iran is the foremost sponsor of states, uh, state-backed terrorism, um, that it'll start to chip away at what they're doing overseas in other countries. And I think that's been, you know, one of his primary focuses at the UN this week is really uh, trying to rally the Western world against the regime, you know, to make that, to make sure that they can don't have the resources, you know, to co- commit terrorist attacks or back terrorist attacks. I think that at least is something that we can probably agree is definitely a positive development. And of course that was not seen during the Obama administration because they, uh, you know, they did the opposite. They empowered Iran. So um, the fact that the Iranian economy is struggling immensely um, means that the resources for their foreign wars, at least are drying up, you know, they continue to prioritize foreign wars, but eventually they're going to have to make a tough decision or, you know, the regime's going to be overthrown or something, you know, something's going to give at some point. So I think that's, you know, in terms of having something that we can really back and support, uh, the, the sanctions against Iran have been tremendously impactful and, uh, you know, have helped a lot in terms of our foreign policy. See, this is what really bothers me. It almost reminds me of Trump going on Twitter bashing the budget bill. And I'm thinking, like, you see the guy has the raw materials for greatness. He wants – he gets – the play that needs to be made, but there's no movement behind him. And it's a similar thing on foreign policy. Trump doesn't get the nuances 
on all the theaters that that you and I talk about. Because on the one hand, he wants to be very tough, and which is good. He wants to you know fight the bad guys. But then you know you have to understand when when you have bad guys in a rat hole fighting other bad guys that you know like you know you just um you know, sent me a message as we're talking. Uh, what is it? U.S. Marine Corps F thirty five pilots flying in intel and recon missions over Somalia. We've actually lost a couple soldiers there recently. What are we doing there? But I could picture without a movement behind him to take his good intuition and say like yeah no you're right like just like you think afghanistan's stupid this is also dumb this is not where it's at don't waste your time on it but you know there's this one directional um focus I, i'm just reading from bob woodward's book and, and again full disclosure i didn't read the book um these are quotes in the washington post from the book but where trump just yelled at his national security council and the generals there for 25 minutes on uh, someday in July of last year. The soldiers on the ground could run things better than you. They could do a much better job. I don't know what the hell we're doing. How many more deaths? How many more lost limbs? How much longer are we going to be there? And it, it's actually, you know, it, it's funny because a lot of people are focusing on how um, Woodward's book is a big hit on Trump. But you know, friends of mine have made the comment that if you look at this component of the book, which is pretty big actually on foreign policy in Afghanistan, he actually comes out looking good. Um, I, I really think you know there's a lot of things I, I'm not shy about criticizing him on, but I'm frustrated that his intuitions are good, but it seems like we don't have enough men on the field, whether they're outside advisors, people in conservative media, people on the inside taking the raw materials of his good intuition and transforming them into the right policy outcomes. Yeah, it's an uphill battle. You know, it's part of this draining the swamp narrative that we you know, discussed often. And, you know, the big swamp is the Pentagon. And, uh, you know, they've been pursuing these same policies under Republicans and Democrats with regard to Afghanistan, you know, the wars in Africa and stuff. And, you know, he, he talked about it in his uh, UN speech about this, you know, consensus and, failed ideologies you know a lot of this comes from the uh the elite in washington and uh <clears throat> you know you hope to see some turnover in the pentagon soon we're reaching the midterms now um i think it's important to have uh, of course you know we respect general mass's service and uh you know he's a tremendous you know tactical commander and no one would ever question that but um in terms of the grand strategy it's never really been there you know and he if he can't carry out the president's um, foreign policy, then I think it's time to, you know, find someone else who can. So uh, it, it's, it's tough, right? Because we're so outnumbered, you know, people that um, think about the issues the way we do, even amongst, uh, I think, concert people who identify as conservative, I think we might still be a minority on this issue, but uh, yeah. you know, we're making, we're making strides. Um, but it, it, it is tough. Yeah. And recognizing that, um, the president has the right intuition, right? So it's frustrating for us, but, you know, he's going against so many other forces that want to continue the status quo. So, you know, hopefully we'll see something maybe after the midterms, he can shake something up, but um, he's got a really good secretary of state now, you know, he's made huge upgrade from Rex Tillerson, who basically sure. accomplished nothing, tried to restructure the state department left before that even happened. Um, and, uh, you know, he has made improvements in his national security council. Um, 
so th- th- I think there's there's reasons for optimism. No, there are. Although I, I did, you know, I did read and I don't know, I, I have no way of independently corroborating this, that Stephen Miller had to overrule Pompeo on the refugee cap. So, you know, th- there might be a little bit of swamp influencing him there. Ho- l- luckily, Trump won out on that issue. Um, what My biggest criticism, just probably looking at the landscape. So, number one. And it's not a criticism, really. It's just because I'm the Latin American nerd, and I just believe so much converges there. He mentioned the Monroe Doctrine in a different context, and I would have loved for him to get up there and just have a portion of it saying we're establishing a new Monroe Doctrine in the Western Hemisphere and directly calling out Russia, China, and Iran. And again, look, we're gonna, you know, we're not gonna get involved in dumpster fires in the Middle East that don't threaten us, but um, you're not gonna come over here to Latin America. And so disquiet. There's that, and just Russia. He's taken a lot of criticism for being weak on Russia. Some of it fair, some of it very unfair. Now, we should certainly never lose an election for being perceived as being too weak on Russia. That would be just a, a disaster for conservatives to lose based on that. That was the one country he, he he only mentioned it parsimoniously in order to make fun out of Germany when he was praising Poland for building the um, you know Baltic pipeline, and then he went after Germany for relying on Russia. But Russia really fits in because they really violate everyone else's else's sovereignty, and you know he doesn't have to talk about Crimea, but the stuff that they're doing in Latin America is I mean really is a violation of the Monroe Doctrine. It w- I felt that was the area he pulled the punch. Yeah, I mean, the uh, well, there uh, there are some interesting developments. I don't know if you caught in Latin America that uh, I think Brazil just um, arrested a Hezbollah drug trafficker. I think he had some kind of um, nickname indicating that he was a high-ranking official in Hezbollah. And I think you sent me something the other day. Um, another South American country uh, took down a big Hezbollah trafficker. So I think that there's something going on uh, quietly inside of the government um, in terms of a Western Hemisphere strategy to stop, uh, you know, drug trafficking and terrorism, at least not um, directly affecting our southern border because we still have a lot of work to do there. But in terms of, um, you know, in the tri-border area, when it's dealing with this terrorist drug trade nexus um, with the, you know, Islamic terrorist groups, I think that there's Definitely efforts being made quietly, um, you know, within the federal government to stop that. Uh, of course, you know, with the Mexican cartel is a whole other issue. We're not really seeing much progress on that front. Um, oh, no, I don't yeah. know if you are. It's too, it's too big to fail. Uh, yeah. Too too big to fail. And, and again, it's all in this budget bill. I mean, just so our listeners know, not only did they not put any riders in the budget bill on, on um, DHS and Office of Refugee Resettlement – to block the asylum and UAC invasion. And again, they're not unaccompanied minors because they're being um, reunited with other illegal alien relatives, so they they should not qualify for refugee status. And then they're not severely trafficked because they're self-trafficked. But they actually have riders in the bill to do the opposite, to... You know, almost encourage it. it. It demands that congressmen be given any, you know, just at will access to the facilities that they're detained in. And it forces ORR to come up with a strategy of uniting families, meaning rather than stopping the invasion, it's almost like facilitating it. Very disappointing of the president. 
um, signs it. But again, there's no real movement behind him with the Kavanaugh stuff. A hundred percent of conservative media and organizations are focused on that, and um, there's nothing on this. I wanted to get your take on Venezuela for the first time. You know, we always hear North Korea, we hear Iran. He actually put Venezuela up there, kind of with the axis of evil. Uh, he didn't use that term, but um, my concern. I'm curious what you're seeing. My concern, and I've had Joseph Humeyer our resident Latin American expert on the show, concerned of the Marco Rubio strategy. In other words, we care deeply about what's going on there, but there's different types of caring. In other words, we need to have the right carrot and stick approach to immigration, to um, supporting our Colombian allies. But when you start talking about getting the military involved in Venezuela itself – what does that look like? You know, Trump seems to be threatening that. What What is happening there behind the scenes? Yeah, I mean, the quote was the president that the president articulated um, this morning was that all options are on the table. Um, so that, of course, means military option. Uh, and you would hope that he learned from the lessons from our endeavors into the Middle East that with military action comes a lot of people that think we should be responsible for the results of that military action on the population of the country that we're in, which means that, you know, it could also set off a refugee crisis and we would feel responsible for taking in, you know, millions of Venezuelans. So that's kind of the issue. Um, You know, the way I see it is that, of course, it's a human rights catastrophe. I think that there's a lot that maybe the U.S. government can do to help, um, legitimate political refugees. Um, and in terms of that, it's just, you know, it, it's a very unfortunate situation. Um, but again, uh, with this Trump doctrine restating it, the U S needs to take care of its own national interests. Um, it's of course not good that the Venezuelan regime is, you know, acting out against people and in there's, you know, tremendous inflation and, there's hunger crisis and there's all these issues, but we have to make sure it doesn't become our issue too, right? Like the American people don't want to sign up for another for another foreign war and uh, you know the, another immigration crisis on top of our other immigration crises. So you know you have to definitely proceed with caution here. And, and if there's things we can do to help the Venezuelan people um, in terms of like let's say reappropriating that UNRWA aid. And, you know, sending it to some uh, NGOs that are trying to help people on the ground there. I think, yeah, sure, that's a good idea. But um, using military force to perhaps overthrow the uh, Maduro regime, a very risky move. I don't think that the president, it it would be surprising to see the president who's already, you know, recognizes that America's war weary from its Middle East engagements to do something like this. So, You know, of course, if I was his advisor, I would advise against military action, because once you once you take that step, then you are basically responsible for what happens next. Yeah. So it's a military dumpster fire. And then it's, you know, like we see with Afghanistan, uh, 20,000 Afghanis were brought into this country last year. You get the worst of both. Um, I'm I'm all for, again, a very strong carrot and stick approach in the Latin in Latin America. And that will kind of steer governments in a certain way. Um, I'm all for, uh, you know, doing it on the cheap, you know, where you could just easily kind of 
um, ensure bad guys don't get into power, kind of, you know, even overthrow bad guys. But in, in the case of Venezuela in particular, I'm not sure what that looks like. I'm really um, – it, the country is very messed up, as as, as Hugh Meyer always warns. There's several hundred thousand uh, Syrian Lebanese people of Syrian Lebanese descent there. There's a lot of Iranian influence. Um, you got to be very careful with Manuel being Muhammad, literally in that case. Um, you have um, Al Tariq, who's the um, you know very Spanish sounding name. He was the VP under Maduro, and now he's going back to kind of, I don't know if it's interior department, but basically he is the one in charge of laundering visas. <laughs> I mean, so, you know, and he's, he's of Syrian descent. He's been um, designated by the Treasury Department as a funder of, of uh, crime and terrorism. He's, it's, it's a big problem. He has ties to Hezbollah. So we got to be very careful with that. You want to isolate them. You want to, you know, do things like that. But, but I don't want to again, own their dumpster fire. I just want to be tough on Maduro without it. And I think that's the difference between the Cruz approach and the the Rubio approach, as, as explained to me by um, by Joseph, and we'll, we'll have him on the show again. So that's with Latin America. Um, just moving on, today you have Trump was chairing the actual – session of the General Assembly. He was in New York today. He was meeting with Netanyahu. What other develop- developments are going on, if you could just run down with Israel, China, different things that, that Trump has said today? Yeah, yeah, sure. So the two big ones um, definitely involved Israel and China. He accused China of meddling in our elections, which I think is a smart move. Um, China has tremendous control over many U.S.-based um, – there's an article by Bill Gertz in the Washington Free Beacon that showed how the Chinese Communist Party – um, has huge ad buys in all these major publications. And I think that's what the president was referencing. Um, you know, whether it, I think it, the big one was in the Des Moines Register the other day, the Chinese uh, Communist Party took out four pages and the Des Moines Register just trashing, I think, his policies. So you could say that that is foreign meddling, of course, and a lot of these papers, especially liberal ones, are you know taking money from the Chinese Communist Party? Well, while, and, while um, complaining about foreign meddling, <laughs> exactly because it's not Russian meddling, I guess, and I'm sure they've taken money from the Russians too. <laughs> but um, so he directly accused the Chinese of meddling in our elections, and I think that's a good thing. And it's not only through you know Chinese propaganda, but it's also you know the Chinese have a sophisticated cyber program, and in terms of the whole like you know interference and hacking stuff. Uh, no one parallels what the Chinese are doing. Um, they hacked OMB and stole millions of government employees, you know, personal information. They did that during the Obama years, and you know, they were never checked for that. And they continue to you know, spy on us and try to steal our intellectual property and our information. That's very well documented. Um, you know, a lot of their fighter jet facts that they released are basically carbon copies of ours. So, you know, the Chinese steal hundreds of billions of dollars in intellectual property. They steal our stuff. Um, they're by far our chief rival. And the president was really, you know, strong in calling them out today um, in the Security Council right in front of, you know, the Chinese um, representative. It wasn't the president, but I think it was the foreign minister. Um, 
and then he met with Bibi Netanyahu. Wait, 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 before you move on to Netanyahu, I just found that yeah. very interesting, and I, and, I, and I really found that to be effective diplomacy, how he called them out today, but yesterday in his speech, he actually praised the Chinese president for working on North Korea. <laughs> you know, again, that yeah, carrot and stick. That's always been his approach, um, to try to kind of butter them up and, uh, you know, knock them down a couple pegs if necessary. And I, th- and I think it works. You know, he has an, a cordial relationship with the president of China, and I think they get along on a personal level, but he's still uh, protecting American interests, which I think a lot of people can appreciate. Wow. No, that's good. So, yeah, okay. And then he met with Netanyahu. I guess this was the first time in a while. Yeah, so they just talked about, you know, it was basically just the, uh, you know, the standard rhetoric. Uh, the, the, the breaking news is that the president said that he likes the two-state solution. I don't think people should really overreact to that. It's the first time he said, you know, he's a, he, he supports the two-state solution, sort of. Um, but this president has been a tremendous friend to Israel, and he's not going to. I, I would be shocked if he released a plan that, that forced Israel to do anything with regard to the PLO, uh, the Palestinians. And um, I, I think that people are going to really overstate kind of an offhand remark that he made to Netanyahu. Um, again, like his Middle East peace team is all made up of pro-Israel advocates. You know, it's no secret that Green, Black, Kushner, and Friedman are very pro-Israel. Um, so I don't, I, I'm not too alarmed by it. Um, you know, Netanyahu and him obviously have a really good relationship. And I think, uh, you know, moving forward, that will continue to be the case. So, so you don't, you don't see any malignant forces in the administration. I know at the first few months, you and I were very concerned. Oh, yeah. Some of these guys would, you know, the old habits never die hard. The old discredited dogmas, um, the two-state solution has more life than the cat girl, cat woman. You know what I mean? It's just like <laughs> it, it never dies. So you're not concerned about this, this plan and what they're trying to do with it. Oh, oh no. It's definitely uh, – there's a chance, you know, things can go really wrong, and then the president surrounds himself with, you know, members of this bipartisan foreign policy class who are all for this stupid two-state solution. Um, there's always a chance. Um, but I think there's less of a chance today than there was on day one. So I think we're moving in, in the right direction on that, um, especially with guys like John Bolton and Pompeo instead of McMaster and Tillerson. Um I think Mattis is probably a two-state solution guy, and I'm sure there's some outside advisors that are talking to the president. All these think tank people are two-state solution people. Two-state solution is like the worst idea ever because, of course, um, you know it empowers the PLO, which is basically a terrorist organization, and Hamas, which is a U.S.-terrorist organization. Um, and I I know that there's people that I'm sure are getting to the president that are saying, you know, two-state solution is a great idea. Um, but I think that, in, again, instinctually, he really gets it on this one, that Israel is the, you know, the moral, the one you should be morally supporting, and that the Palestinians, whether it's, um, you know, Mahmoud Abbas's Fatah party or Hamas, uh, they're both inciting terrorism, both encouraging terrorism. Uh, Israel has no partner for peace right now, and people shouldn't be delusional and think that way, that they do. So, so that's what I really liked about his speech yesterday. Um that I felt, you know, it, it reflects what he's been doing the past year or so. 
but it really embodies a new approach that we really haven't seen, not just obviously Obama, but with the Bush administration, several several previous administrations. He said the U.S. is committed to a future of peace and stability in the region. So notice it says a region, including peace between the Israelis and Palestinians. That aim is advanced, not harmed, by acknowledging the obvious facts. He said that in relation to moving the Jerusalem embassy. So mm-hmm. not just like, oh, we're going to do it, but then like, you know, like I, I was scared originally that he would do it and then just recoil from the backlash and like, okay, now, now we have to jumpstart the two-state solution or just, you know, be quiet about it. No, he loudly and boldly celebrated it at the UN that he moved the embassy and recognized Jerusalem belongs to Israel. And then he said that doing so advances um, the the goals of peace doesn't and, and doesn't harm it. I mean, the, the exact opposite of the dogma until now. Yeah, and and it's it's great that he did that because at the UN, this is an issue that they hated more than him leaving the Iran deal. I mean, this is an issue that had it not been for the president's leadership, um, the current state of affairs when Obama was in office was that the uh, was that the Israeli government wanted countries to move their embassy to Jerusalem, and not a single nation agreed, right? So, so you couldn't even, it, it couldn't get worse. Um, so for the president, when the president came in, it was still, you know, it's still at this point only the United States and maybe half a dozen other countries that have moved their embassies or have committed to moving their embassies. Um, and the momentum's going in, you know, the U.S. and Israel's direction. But for him to say this in front of, you know, a group of authoritarians that really hate Israel is is a bold step, and I think it it shows that you know the U.S. does have Israel's back, um, and he's it's not only through rhetoric but through his policies. One final thing, just to go back to North Korea, I'm seeing that uh, Secretary of State Pompeo is going to visit North Korea. I assume that means visiting with Kim Jong next month. Um, what is the latest going on there? What is – could we still confidently say that the reality is what was reflected in the speech, that he hasn't offered anything – or not offered, but he hasn't given them anything tangible at this point um, for the moves they have made? And are the moves they've made destroying some facilities – is there any validity to that? I, I haven't seen anything to – express optimism about their denuclearization process. And I think that was reflected in both Bolton and Pompeo's statements at the UN. Um, They haven't seen anything yet. I think it's good. Dialogue can't hurt, especially when we're at the point, as we know, that North Korea already possesses nuclear weapons. So there's nothing we can really do, unfortunately, at this point, to make those weapons disappear overnight. And if they think that dialogue could potentially lead them to a path of denuclearization, as opposed to just kind of having a standoff with North Korea, um, you know, I, I think that they're right to pursue that route. Um, this is what I'm pessimistic about, and I think you probably are too, that I don't see this regime ever giving up its nuclear weapons. Um, so, you know, the only advice would just be to proceed with caution. And they haven't given away anything yet. Um, so the worst that can happen is basically a continuous stalemate, which I think is the reality for at least 
you know, the near future, possibly the entirety of this administration. Um, you know, Kim Jong-un knows that that's his chief leverage point. And, you know, they've played this game with the U.S. before. And as long as we don't give away anything, um, you know, we have nothing to lose by, by pursuing this route. No, I mean, that's what I figure. The, the missiles have stopped flying. Um, mm-hmm. And seemingly we haven't given anything. We've only gotten, you know, the remains of some of the Korean soldiers or the soldiers from Korean War and obviously the hostage. And, uh, you know, we'll see what happens with that. And it's hard to imagine someone like John Bolton, who has dedicated his entire adult life to combating this threat, would would somehow, uh, you know, flip to being weak on this. So, again, it's all a matter of speaking softly and carrying a big stick. And I think if he continues on that path, it's good. But once again, we it, it takes a village. I'm seeing that on domestic policy. We, we expect one man to come and just do something for us. And, and certainly we understand Trump is, you know, has his share of flaws, character, personality, baggage. And you need a movement. You need a movement. And sadly, you know, Jordan, you and I have a lot of work cut out for us to yeah. creating a coherent vision on foreign policy. But certainly to have an American president lay out a lot of the principles we've been talking about with principled realism, um, not the typical labels that, that you hear about with isolationism, interventionism, um, laid out at the UN, very solid. You could follow Jordan's work um, on Twitter at Jordan Schachtel. Um, or you go to Conservative Review, Jordan Schachtel, you'll see his uh, his work. We'll link to his article on the speech in show notes. And with that, Jordan, we got to make this uh, you know a, a regular occurrence, maybe maybe more on Friday instead of Wednesday. Um, but thanks for joining us. We get a lot of great feedback from you as always. Yeah, absolutely. Anytime. Thanks so much. Well, there you have it. That was Jordan Schachtel, our national security correspondent. Jordan is a really bright guy um really really sharp up-and-coming conservative star uh that's why i like having him on i know you guys like him as well and these are the voices that we need to hear from more often you know i'm kind of jealous of him that he's able to focus on national security or foreign policy almost solely and could just you know stay in that one (laughs) Sphere. I wish I could drill down more deeply into any one issue, but I've kind of become a catch-all type of guy, where you're, you know, a jack of of all trades, but a, a king of none. So it is what it is. But but anyway, I mean, this is what's being missed it, amidst this civil war over: is Trump good? Is he bad? Is this that? Trump is Trump. He's president. The reality is. What you're seeing and what you're likely going to see with the results of the midterm elections is what happens when you get a guy like Trump and you don't have a conservative movement to steer him in the right direction. You're going to get all the liabilities of Trump, but you're not going to get the benefits, in which which there really are. I mean, say what you want about him, and I believe he's his ego gets out of control and his personal stuff, whatever. But when he's able to put that aside, he does have certain beliefs of – taking a look at a situation with a, with a fresh look. And that's something that we all, I mean, even if you're a, a Democrat, a liberal, albeit a more intellectually honest one, you, you should desire that from your leaders as well. Um, we need independent thinkers, but the problem is there's just nobody around 
to to just give any analysis of this and give the president some sort of cogent blueprint for how he could be consistent on these issues. You see he wants to do the right thing on most of foreign policy. Um, and where there are victories, it has been on foreign policy. You know, pulling out of these UN agencies, we've been talking about it for decades. He finally didn't. And I think he does deserve credit for that. But unfortunately, you know, nobody's talking about this today. It's all about Kavanaugh and sex and gang rape. And um, I'm going to reserve comment until the next two days because there really is no purpose in getting out ahead. What I what I said from day one, it's the same thing I said with Roy Moore. I said, you know, oh, someone's innocent until proven guilty. And even when you're not dealing in a criminal context, when you're dealing with more of a political context, the spirit of that still applies. You have to have some sort of – I mean the standard is not necessarily as high um, to at least – be concerned that maybe it's true and step away from someone, but you have to have some sort of narrative that makes sense. And, you know, it didn't reach that level, but now you you have a bunch of other people coming forward. We'll see what happens. The only thing I will say is this. The reaction from the conservative establishment and respected conservative pundits and writers is astounding because at this point, and I'm not saying I think there's necessarily even even after the other two people any shred of truth to this i just don't know at this point and i i think we'll find out um we'll see more and that's why it's it's not worth judging at this point you could argue whether they should have delayed the vote at all but once they did and they're going to hold the hearing and you have two other people coming forward and saying they're willing to testify so let's just wait to see what happens but i will say this is at this point it is completely similar to the Roy Morris situation where a hundred percent of them said he was guilty of sin and just ate out of the media's hand, whereas here they're saying the media is awful. Again, it's all tribalism. It's all tribalism. It's not just, you know, okay, Democrats rally around their people, Republicans rally around their people. Within Republicans, you have Republican golden boys and then you have more grassroots type of candidates, and the grassroots candidates will be thrown overboard after the first allegation. Whereas the Golden Boys will be defended. He might deserve to be defended here. I'm just, I want to point out that inconsistency because it is very telling for those of us who live through the Roy Moore saga. Um, you know, just, just to close up here, the other news, as I mentioned at the top of the hour, that is being overshadowed is today the House of Representatives is voting for. The worst Democrat budget bill ever. I, I can't even explain in any degree of accurate words that gives justice to just how deep and severe and appalling this perfidy really is. Republicans are on pace, or Congress is on pace, for the swiftest conclusion of the fiscal year 2019 appropriation bills that we've seen really in a generation. Now, you might say, hell, this is great. Regular order, Congress doing their job. No, no, no. <laughs> it's, it might be regular order, but it's born out of irregular political circumstances. Where Republicans, you've never had a situation where the majority party so agreed with the fundamental priorities of the minority party that there's nothing to fight over. 
And that's why it's just so surreal watching this knockdown, dragout fight over Kavanaugh when ironically on everything that matters, the two sides agree so swiftly. You know, I was thinking, I was thinking over, over the past week, you know, was there anything wrong with the Constitution we adopted? And we always say we're not following the Constitution, and that's the main problem. That's true. But is there anything we would change? And I really, you know, obviously I think term limits might might be better, things like that. But in terms of the actual structure of the three branches of government that we actually did adopt, I really think, as Benjamin Franklin said in in the closing of the convention, I don't know if this is not the most perfect system we could adopt. It's not perfect because we can't – Get perfection. Only God can. It was a pretty doggone good system. You know, because we were thinking of the breakdown that all the good things we want to do, you know, we can't get past. Can't get past. But what's funny is you might think, oh, well, is there a breakdown to the process? You can't get anything past. That's not true. Because believe me, they're passing an awful lot of consequential things. With those 70 opioid bills all built on a lie – I mean, they did that conference in, what, three days? The conference committee passed almost unanimously with Mike Lee being the only no vote. Now it moves on to the House where we'll probably get all but five or so votes. They pass things when they want to. So it's not a breakdown in the system. It's a breakdown in the politics and the culture of what these people believe in. We're a self-immolating nation, meaning George Washington was concerned already in his turn time already his first term you had political factions and 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 he really saw that that would sow the seeds of of um discord in the system because rather than having branches of government push back and check each other you don't really have branches anymore you have each branch divided by members of political parties so it's really just a redundant manifestation of the political divide rather than the system divide. But as I I noted in my Constitution Day piece uh, a while back, we posted this originally, um, I believe, two years ago, and you know we've 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 reposted it a couple of times. Once you're going to have factions, it's better to have more factions. <laughs> The worst is when you have this duopoly, which is really just a, a monobrow um, between between one system. So it's controlled by political parties, and that's how you have the breakdown of the traditional checks and balances that we have. That's the main issue we have here. Ideally, we wouldn't have any factions or parties. But even as Washington recognized in his time, they're inseparable from our nat- nature. So the best thing we can do to break the monopoly of the oligarchy is by introducing more more choice and competition to those parties. And that's really what Madison meant when he talked about in Federalist 10. The way to deal with the necessary evil of factions is to grow the pie. He said, quote, you take in greater variety of parties and interests. You make it less probable that a majority of the whole will have a common motive to invade the rights of other citizens. Now, he, he wasn't talking so much about political parties. He just assumed having 13 different states with different, you know, equal representation in the Senate, 
things like that would would cause this to happen. But what happened was once you had you don't really have states either anymore. You just have Republican and Democrat, and again they they really agree on most issues. Unfortunately, fight to the death over the soap operas. So then people have the illusion of thinking that there's a tremendous polarization. At least at a political level, which there really isn't. There might be in the culture. So we get tyranny because it's all one faction. We need more factions. We need to create our, that new party. One other thing, uh, you know, just to reiterate, you know, it's amazing. The House is voting today, so they they have to show face in some way. Well, how do you completely get owned on immigration? You know, you fund the invasion. You don't go after sanctuary cities. So. They're having a non-binding resolution condemning localities that allow illegal aliens to vote. Now, I offer 25 ideas that will have teeth in it, and and uh, particularly addressing this would be requiring um, states to use E-Verify under motor voter laws, updating motor voter statutes, obviously cutting off funds to sanctuary cities or cities that allow illegals to vote. But none of that. That is what the Republican Party is. When the ball is in play, they'll sit on it or they'll hand it to the other side. In practice, they'll throw good passes off the field when the, when the outcome is no longer in contention. So I want to make sure you guys don't lose sight in you know the next two days of Kavanaugh mania um, and whatever comes out from that, I don't want you guys to lose sight, not just of the fact that the Supreme Court has become way too important. And it should never be like this. And even now that it's become important, Kavanaugh is not going to change that. And frankly, Kavanaugh is a mil- as milk toast as they get. I think he's worse than Gorsuch. And Gorsuch has some problems on immigration, as we saw with the criminal alien statutes, creating a right to immigrate. They have a due process right against deportation. But just to lose sight of some of the other issues, what what, what the, the betrayals that's, that are taking place in the House. So maybe we'll kind of sum this up in an article um, later this week. But for now, make sure if you've missed episodes of The Conservative Conscience, go back and listen to them. I guarantee you this will be your safe space from the mania, craziness, false choices, false dichotomy, true independent conservative constitutionalist thought speaking to the important issues of the day but also routing them back into our foundational historical principles that is the goal here that's what my commitment is and we're going to continue doing that god bless thank you all for listening this has been another episode of the conservative conscience 